Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, November 6th, 2020. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. The radio station, the live station metadata, well, Firefox kind of screwed me around and I couldn't update it in time. This evening we are going to present Part 14 of our commentary on the wisdom of Solomon, and it is titled, The Rewards of Wisdom. Before we start, I want to be, I just want to state that because we live an hour from the nearest post office, and they're on routes that we normally don't travel more than once in a while, we've been shipping our book orders at Christagenia perhaps once every three or four weeks, according to the volume of the orders. If we get a dozen orders and make it worthwhile going to the post office, of course, we would go more often. Sometimes it takes three weeks, four weeks to get enough orders to make it worth the trip. So I'm sorry if anyone has been waiting for books for a while. We haven't made a trip in about three weeks now to the post office. We haven't made any shipments. That's just the way it is. I can't help it. it it's um, contrary to my economic well-being to go to the post office with one or two or three book orders. That's just the way it is. It's too costly for us. So we will ship our current orders, I pray, on Monday. Or perhaps Melissa, my wife, will go Tuesday. But they will be out early next week. So if you've been waiting for a book, because I know I have at least one email inquiry that I received yesterday and haven't been able to answer yet. If you've been waiting for a book, they will be there soon. That's all I could promise. I'm not a commercial enterprise, so it's just difficult to ship my books in in the fashion that you might expect from Amazon.com or, or some vendor, commercial vendor like that. Forget that. We just will never have their resources. I don't think that um, Jeff Bezos, that Jew's wife, has to drive down an hour to the post office to mail out their shipments. <laughs> and I'm being sarcastic. I apologize for any holdups, but that's just the way it is. And that's the way that we have to operate as, as a small two-person, I, I hate to say business, but selling books, that's what it is. So with that being said, this is part 14 of our commentary on the wisdom of Solomon, the rewards of wisdom. In these last few chapters of wisdom, Solomon has explained that the wisdom of which he speaks is indeed the wisdom which comes from God. And he related it explicitly to the commandments of God. Doing that, he had also explained that such is the wisdom by which kings should justly rule. Specifically speaking of the future kings of Israel, who would be expected to have the commandments of God. Having portrayed that wisdom as a woman, he then described her beauty he characterized, I should say, that wisdom as a woman. And then he explained or described her beauty 
And now, proceeding with Wisdom Chapter 8, he continues by describing her rewards. Discussing his description of the beauty of wisdom, we left off with Wisdom Chapter 8 at verse 9, where Solomon had written that on account of that beauty, therefore I purposed to take her to me, to live with me, knowing that she would be a counselor of good things and a comfort in cares and grief. However, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, Solomon seemed to have sought to justify his purposeful venture, his purposeful venture into folly by stating that for in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increases knowledge increases sorrow. On the surface, one may suspect a conflict in the two statements, although it is evident that both statements are indeed true. In much wisdom, there is much sorrow, as one perceives all of the evil around him. However, in wisdom, there is also comfort, in spite of the grief which it causes. As Solomon had ended Ecclesiastes with an assurance, with an assurance that God will indeed judge men for their works. So now we shall commence with Solomon's estimation of the rewards of wisdom, which he himself had certainly experienced. Wisdom chapter 8, verse 10. For her sake, I shall have estimation among the multitude and honor with the elders, though I be young. The word for multitude is actually plural, multitudes. We would translate the last clause to read, and a youth honored alongside the elders. As Solomon had said in chapter 4 of Wisdom, but wisdom is the gray hair unto men, and an unspotted life is old age. In other words, a man of such wisdom, even if he is still young, would have, would command the same respect which is generally due to an elder. A notable example is the life of Daniel the prophet, who was a very young man when he was taken to Babylon. And his wisdom earned him renown very early in his life. And we will speak about Daniel, I believe, a little more later on. In verse 11 of Wisdom, chapter 8, I shall be found of a quick conceit. I don't really like that phrase here. I shall be found of a quick conceit in judgment and shall, be, and shall be admired in the sight of great men. Sometimes when I speak, I don't think I'm clear, so I have to repeat myself if I think I caught myself misspeaking. I probably didn't. I'm just sort of my own worst critic. I'm sorry. Christians are told to be quick to listen in judgment and slow to speak so that they do not judge or act rashly. This we read in James chapter 1. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man 
be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath or anger or execution of a judgment which is deserving of wrath, a crime which is judgment for a crime which is deserving of wrath. You don't want to be quick to do that because you may be mistaken. For the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. There was similar advice from Solomon himself three times in the Proverbs in chapters 14 through 16. And we've offered it here in earlier presentations on wisdom, so I won't repeat them again this evening. But here the phrase quick conceit is from the Greek word oxus, from one word, which is literally sharp or keen. And according to Liddell and Scott, of things that affect the sight, it means dazzling or bright. And that is the overall context of this passage. The word for opsis here, which is literally the face, but here it is translated as sight, and that is a fair translation. However, there is a verb, thalmazo, which is to wonder, marvel, or to be astonished, as well as to honor or admire. And therefore, we would translate this verse to read, Brilliant shall I be found in judgment, not of quick conceit, but brilliant shall I be found in judgment, and in the face of rulers they shall marvel. By the beauty of wisdom, by the beauty of the wisdom of God, men can be brilliant in judgment to a degree which may cause others to marvel. So we read in 1 Kings chapter 4, And Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the east country and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrahite, and Haman, and Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal. And his fame was in all nations round about. And he spoke 3,000 proverbs. I haven't added up how many proverbs are in the book of Proverbs. It's long, but I don't think it's quite that long. And he spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. And he spoke of trees from the cedar tree that is in Lebanon, even unto the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of fowl and of creeping things and of fishes. And there came of all people to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all kings of the earth which had heard of his wisdom. Now, while we did, while we did not fully expound on a similar passage in chapter 7 of Wisdom, when we had encountered, encountered it, there Solomon had written, For he has given me certain knowledge of the things that are, namely, to know how the world was made, and the operation of the elements, the beginning, ending, and midst of the times, the alterations of the turning of the sun, and the changes of the seasons, the circuits of years, and the positions of stars 
the natures of living creatures and the furies of wild beasts, the violence of winds and the reasonings of men, the diversities of plants and the virtues of roots, and all such things as are either secret or manifest, them I know. Thus we just read another but more concise testimony of that same thing in summary in 1 Kings 4.33. And he spoke of trees, from the cedar tree that is in Lebanon, even unto the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of fowl, and of creeping things and of fishes. And now Solomon describes the effect which such wisdom has on other men as they marvel, as he said. So it is apparent that they may also recognize its value when they hear such wisdom. When I hold my tongue, reading verse 12, they shall bide my leisure, and when I speak, they shall give good ear unto me. If I talk much, they shall lay their hands upon their mouth. And here, while the King James translation is fair, we would rather read the verse as literally as possible. I am silent. This is our translation of verse 12. I am silent. They shall wait, speaking of those who hear his wisdom, including other kings. Then I shall speak, they shall give heed, and speaking even further, or even more. They shall place a hand upon their mouths. In other words, they will refrain from speaking, recognizing his great wisdom, which is wisdom from God. The concise language of wisdom in many passages is accounted for once it is recognized that the original work was written as poetry. Here Solomon is describing the natural result which one may achieve upon speaking and judging by the wisdom of God in one's everyday life, not only in church for an hour a week or among friends on your Facebook page. Now Solomon describes a greater result. Moreover, by the means of her, meaning wisdom, I shall obtain immortality and leave behind me an everlasting memorial to them that come after me. The proof of this, the proof of the truth of this, is in Solomon himself. As men to this very day cherish his words, in Proverbs, in Ecclesiastes, and in his other writings, Song of Solomon, and as far as I am concerned, this very book of wisdom. In spite of his sins, he is admired in the historical chronicles of Scripture, and he has been looked upon favorably by most Christians throughout history. However, here Solomon was addressing all of the future kings of Israel. And unfortunately, very few kings actually ever followed his admonitions. 
How many ancient kings can you recall off the top of your head without looking in Wikipedia or some other ready source? Recalling the most memorable kings of Saxon England. For further examples, there are Alfred the Great and Edward the Confessor, both of whom were devout Christians. They were both great men. They both left behind a legacy, but that legacy was because, and their actions and their, that their triumphs in their careers were because they were devout Christians. Now, we might remember Harold, the last Saxon king, but we're only going to remember him because he was defeated by the Normans, by William the Conqueror at the Battle of Hastings. We don't remember his great accomplishments. He did have a few, but these other men, Alfred and Edward, we remember, and their achievements were because they were devout Christians for the greatest part. Alfred the Great actually oversaw the conversion to Christianity of certain Viking kings who were his enemies. Of course, there are, there are other examples. But if there were more kings throughout history who had hearkened to Solomon, I'm sorry, to Solomon's words, not only would they have left an even more memorable legacy, but perhaps their kingdoms may have been even greater, as Solomon now professes, because he rules by the wisdom of God, because he searches out and seeks the wisdom of God. I shall set the people in order, and the nations shall be subject unto me. That first clause, we would translate to read, I shall govern the people. However, the Greek verb, di oikeo, is more literally to manage a house. <coughs> and this is going to cause me to take a digression. Paul of Tarsus had used a similar word in several of his epistles in relation to the function of his own ministry. So we read in Ephesians chapter 3, for this cause, I, Paul, captive of Christ Joshua, on behalf of you of the nations, if indeed you have heard of the management of the family or the management of the house, of the favor of Yahweh, so there is only one house or one family that has the favor of Yahweh, which has been given to me in regard to you, and then a little further on, in verse 8, to me, least of all saints, has been given his favor to announce the good message to the nations, the unsearchable riches of the anointed, and to enlighten all concerning the management of the household or family, of the mystery, the lost sheep, children of Israel, which was concealed from the ages by Yahweh, by whom all things are being established. Solomon, as did David his father, acknowledged that he sat on a throne which truly belonged to Yahweh God, 
and therefore he was ruling over the household of God as an agent of God. Yahweh himself had announced to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 14, ye are the children of Yahweh your God. While the children of Israel, apart from all other peoples, are considered the children of God in the words of the prophets, and while their rulers are often considered shepherds of the flock of God, words related to dioikeo and oikonomia, which we see in those passages of here in Solomon and of the epistles of Paul, do appear elsewhere in Greek scriptures in the same context. For example, in Psalm 102, verse 16, which in the Septuagint is 101.16, we read, For the Lord shall build up Sion, and shall appear in his glory. In prophecy, Sion, or Zion, in the King James Version, usually, often refers prophetically to the collective children of Israel. The word translated as build up there is oikodomeo, which is literally to build a house. Therefore, when Paul wrote his epistles, he used the word oikonomia, which is the management of a household or family in order to describe his ministry. The word oikonomia is to manage a house. And Paul described that house in Hebrews chapter 8, where he cited Jeremiah 31 and professed that the new covenant was intended for the house of Israel, using the word oikos, which is literally a house, but is used to describe the family of the children of Israel in the Old Testament. While the word oikos and all of the words related to it, dioikeo, oikonomia, oikodomeo, to build a house, while those words can refer to a physical, literal house, a house is primarily built for a family of people. And the inference is that the family unit itself is a house. Clear examples of this are replete throughout Scripture. For example, in Amos chapter 5, we read, Have you offered unto me sacrifices? This is Yahweh challenging the house of Israel through the prophet Amos. Have you offered unto me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years, O house of Israel? And of course, they had not, they could not. There the word for house is oikos. And it is obvious that wandering in the desert 40 years, the children of Israel had no house. They had no particular geographical domicile, no country as the areas inhabited by distinct nations of people are generally reckoned. And therefore, the word house in that context refers only to the collective family of the people. Then, speaking of the time when they went into captivity and were to be scattered among the countries of other tribes, we read in the word of Yahweh in Amos chapter 9, For lo, I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel 
among all nations like as corn is sifted in a sieve. Yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. So even after Israel was scattered into many different places, they were still a single collective house or family. And it is that house or family with whom the new covenant was promised and to whom Paul of Tarsus and the other apostles had brought the gospel of Christ as they themselves professed. Peter had no other house in mind where he wrote in chapter 4 of his first epistle, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it begins first at us, what shall be the end of they that obey not the gospel of God? Peter had expected the scattered children of Israel to accept the gospel of God as he also heard Christ proclaim that my sheep hear my voice. We illustrate these things here and perhaps even belabor them because this sense of the meaning of these words, which cannot be ignored, is so often lost in translations of the scriptures in English or other languages. Yahweh God did not ever intend to build a church in the sense of an organization or an edifice, which is a building. Rather, he purposed to build up a particular people and his church or congregation, as the words of the original language languages should be understood. His congregation is to manifest itself from among that particular people. Another example of the meanings of these words being lost in translation is found in Isaiah chapter 22. In verse 21, where we read a prophecy of Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and it reads in part from Brenton Septuagint, and I will give thy stewardship into his hands, and he shall be as a father to them that dwell in Jerusalem and to them that dwell in Judah. The word for stewardship is oikonomia, the same word used by Paul, and the man who would be granted that position, which is the management of a house, is likened to a father as the head of a house, where the Septuagint has to them that dwell in Judah. The corresponding Hebrew passage has to the house of Judah, using the Hebrew word beith, or in English, beth, for house. Houses are built for families, but the family itself is the house. When we fall into the error of thinking that the domicile is the house, much like a building by itself is often thought to be a church, which is also an error, then anyone who gains entry into the domicile may be mistakenly thought to be a member of the family, which is not true. Paul used the term house of Israel in Hebrews chapter 8 to describe the same entity which Yahweh had intended to describe in Jeremiah chapter 31 
with the promise of a new covenant. Paul was certainly not corrupting the word of God as he cited it by assigning different meanings to the words which he quoted. So when we see words related to that word oikos, dioikeo, which is the management of a house, oikonomia, which is the management of a house, different ways to describe basically the same function. One's a verb and one is a noun. When we see those words, we have to understand what house it's referring to. It's referring to a particular people. But when we translate those words as stewardship or administration, we lose half the meaning. And that's what all of our Bible translations have done. They've lost half the meaning. If those words were fully translated every time they occurred, according to the context, because sometimes there's the management of an inanimate object, and there we could just translate it as stewardship or management. But when it comes to the management of the people of God, it's the management of the people of the house of God. And in our translations, we've lost that aspect of the meaning in so many important places. So that's why we have these, these Judeo-Christians imagining. That's one reason why, and it's a significant one. We have these Judaized Christians these Christians who have been taught to think like Jews, imagining that Christianity can be for anybody outside of that particular house. And that is not true. Now, while he is still addressing future kings, Solomon describes the effect by which kings ruling by the wisdom of God may have upon men who would be tyrants. And he says, horrible tyrants shall be afraid when they do but hear of me. I shall be found good among the multitude and valiant in war. But Solomon did not describe tyrants who merely hear of him, but those who hear his words. This verse may more literally be translated, hearing me, horrible tyrants shall be stricken with fear. Not hearing the voice, but hearing the content of the words which are spoken because they are in accordance with the wisdom of God. Hearing me, horrible tyrants shall be stricken with fear. Among the multitude I shall appear to be good and manly in war. We had discussed the word Andreas in our last presentation in regard to chapter 8, verse 7 and explained that it described what is masculine or manly. However, it was also used to describe courageous or manly deeds. So wisdom is not found in cowardice or capitulation. And exhibitions of those traits do not come from wisdom. They come from folly. In Luke chapter 1, we read where it is speaking of John the Baptist. And he shall go before him 
in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord or for Yahweh, of course. The prophet Elijah was never a coward in the face of overwhelming odds. But he overcame a king, a queen, a very evil queen, and openly challenged all of the pagan priests and servants of Baal. Likewise, John the Baptist, although he was imprisoned and slain, had similar courage in the face of Herod Antipas, who in turn had feared him. And this leads me to another digression, as there are other striking similarities between the experience of Elijah and that of John the Baptist. When Ahab saw the things which Elijah had done, he feared him, and in 1 Kings chapter 18, had even obeyed what Elijah had told him. But his woman, Jezebel, did not fear him. And she didn't fear him ostensibly because she did not fear God. And therefore, we read in 1 Kings chapter 19, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and withal how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them, meaning one of the people, one of the priests of Baal who were slain, by tomorrow about this time. So Ahab feared his woman more than God, and he came to his end for that reason. So we must ask, was Ahab being manly after he saw the deeds of Elijah and the power and the favor which Elijah had in the eyes of God? Was he being manly when he submitted to his wife who wanted Elijah killed? Of course he wasn't. He was being feminine. Herod feared John the Baptist, yet had him beheaded on account of his wife and daughter. So we see that weak kings, kings who are not manly, reject the wisdom of God and even end up seeking to destroy those who have it. That's an important correlation between Elijah and John the Baptist who came in the spirit of Elijah that they must I'm sorry, that, that they both nearly met their ends at the hands of a king who is being obedient to a woman. We who claim to have the spirit of Elijah today in our Christian, in, in, I'm sorry, in our Christian identity message, we believe that this is the, that Christian identity itself is the Elijah to come, the Christian doctrine which turns the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, to those ancient patriarchs. That's our race, our identity. We cannot be beholden to the woman.
We cannot mimic those weak kings. The men who oppose us may well be beholden to women. So that's a lesson we should draw, we should draw from the opposition which Elijah met and the opposition which John the Baptist met and how he met his end. This entire passage of wisdom here, here in Wisdom chapter 8, evokes the words of the prophet Daniel to the book of Nezar, king of Babylon. And I'm going to read from Daniel chapter 2. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Daniel is saying essentially the same things that Solomon said throughout chapter 8. He gives wisdom unto the wise, those who are wise enough to request it of him, as we will see towards the end of chapter 8, and knowledge to them that know understanding. He reveals the deep and secret things, all those things about animals and trees and other aspects of creation that Solomon understood. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. Nebuchadnezzar understood that Daniel's wisdom came from Yahweh his God. And when Daniel spoke, Nebuchadnezzar was quiet and listened, just as Solomon describes here. Then Nebuchadnezzar rewarded Daniel with a high position within his kingdom, ostensibly so that the entire kingdom would also have some benefit from the wisdom which was found in Daniel. If the kings of Judah had also had the wisdom of Daniel, perhaps the kingdom would never have been destroyed. Continuing to depict wisdom as a beautiful woman, Solomon describes his pursuit of her by imagining that it would be successful, but of course it was not yet quite fulfilled. After I am come into mine house, I will repose myself with her. That means the Greek, the underlying Greek, I don't have it in the notes, but the underlying Greek actually insinuates that he will lie with her together, lie together with her. I will repose myself with her, for her conversation has no bitterness, and to live with her has no sorrow, but mirth and joy. Earlier here in Wisdom chapter 8, we read where it speaks of wisdom. Therefore, I purpose to take her to live with me, knowing that she would be a counselor of good things and a comfort in cares and grief. And I will mention again, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, Solomon wrote, For much wisdom is much grief, and he that increases knowledge increases sorrow. That statement in Ecclesiastes which we have already discussed here earlier, does not necessarily imply that wisdom is the actual source of such grief. Rather, we read in the 119th Psalm, in the words of David, Salvation is far from the wicked, for they seek not thy statutes. 
Great are thy tender mercies, O Yahweh. Quicken me according to thy judgments. Many are my persecutors and mine enemies. Yet do I not decline from thy testimonies. I beheld the transgressors and was grieved, because they kept not thy word. Consider how I love thy precepts. Quicken me, O Yahweh, according to thy loving kindness. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endures forever. David also had the wisdom of God. And here we learn that he was grieved by observing and being confronted with the actions of men who did not keep the word of God. His own son Absalom was an example. His former employer Saul was an example. This experience of David is very similar to the grief which Elijah had later stood up to as it is recorded in 1 Kings chapter 18. Then Elijah said unto the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of Yahweh, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Today, men who seek to please Yahweh God find themselves in very much the same predicament. But having the wisdom of God, they should have mirth and joy in spite of the worldly challenges. So we read in the words of Paul of Tarsus in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. For that same reason, Peter also warned his readers in chapter 4 of his first epistle from verse 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange things ha happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may also be glad with exceeding joy. And that message Paul of Tarsus also bore in his epistle to the Romans. Many years before, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 5, Peter and John were brought to trial and beaten for their faith. As we read that they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. So we must know that through the wisdom of God, we have the knowledge that leads us to rejoice in the face of all the trials we may suffer on account of his enemies. As we face such trials, in spite of grief, we accumulate experiences which only serve to strengthen our convictions that God is true. So now Solomon alludes to the true life as a reward for such wisdom. Now when I considered these things in myself, 
I pondered them in my heart. How that to be allied unto wisdom is immortality. Yahshua Christ, the light come into the world, is the physical embodiment of the essence and wisdom of God. So he told his adversaries, as it is recorded in John chapter 5, and the Father himself, who has sent me, has borne witness of me through those great works which he did. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape, or his form, perhaps. And ye have not his word abiding in you. As he later told them in chapter 10, they are not his sheep. For whom he has sent, him you believe not. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. The scriptures, the Old Testament prophets, even Moses, testified of Christ throughout their writings. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. I receive not honor from men, but I know you that you have not the love of God in you. While Solomon did not necessarily make this illustration in relation to Christ himself, he nevertheless understood that the love, to love the wisdom of God, prepares one for friendship with God. As he declared in chapter 7 of Wisdom, as we would translate verse 14. For she is an unfailing treasure to men, which they have acquired, which they, having acquired, are prepared for friendship with God, being engaged with the gifts of education. Likewise, this same thing was stated again in chapter 6 of the Wisdom of Solomon where Solomon wrote, speaking of wisdom, saying, And love is the keeping of her laws, and the giving heed unto her laws is the assurance of incorruption, and incorruption makes us near to God. But as Solomon had said in Wisdom chapter 2, For God created man to be immortal, and made him to be an image of his own eternity. What we see here in chapter 8 does not conflict with those words, nor do they conflict with the words of Christ found in John chapter 15, where he told his disciples that ye are my friends, if you do whatsoever I command you. The scripture has said that all Israel shall be saved. And Yahweh had promised in Isaiah chapter 45 that I have sworn to myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. In other words, it shall not ever be revoked. That unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. When you say something that's true, nobody's going to bring it up to you when it didn't happen. So the word, this word will not return to Yahweh. Nobody's going to be able to tell God that it didn't happen that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. And then in verse 25, 
in Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. Paul of Tarsus cited that passage from Isaiah in Romans chapter 14. And later, writing his epistle to the Philippians, he said in chapter 2 that in the name of Yahshua, who is Yahweh, every knee would bow of those in heavenly places and of those upon the earth and of those beneath the earth. And every tongue would be, every tongue would fully acknowledge that Yahshua Christ is prince or king in honor of Yahweh the Father, king or lord or ruler, various ways that curios might be interpreted. Therefore, it is apparent that if all Israel shall be saved, that ultimately all Israel shall indeed keep the commandments of Christ and live by that education which is found in the wisdom of God. By keeping his commandments, men make themselves allies of wisdom and prepare themselves to be friends of God. Now Solomon describes, Solomon himself describes that as a friendship and some of the aspects of such a friendship in verse 18 of Wisdom chapter 8. And great pleasure it is to have her friendship and in the works of her hands are infinite riches. And in the exercise of conference, some of these, some of this language is archaic, and I'm going to explain it in my commentary. And in the exercise of conference with her, prudence, and in talking with her, a good report, I went about seeking how to take her to me. And the word great in great pleasure is agathos, which is literally good good pleasure. The word for infinite here, in the works of her hands are infinite riches, is anaklipes, which is literally unfailing, unfailing riches. Solomon used the term, he used that same term in the same context in chapter 7 of Wisdom where he described wisdom, the woman personified, as a treasure unto men that never fails. The phrase translated as exercise of conference is literally exercise together in association. But we could leave out the together part because it's implied in the word association. Exercise in association. So we see an archaic use of the word conference in the King James translation. We sort of still have that use in, in terms like, I hate to go to sports, right? To professional sports, but NFC, National Football Conference, I believe that means it's an association, a conference. So the phrase in talking with her is a, concise translation of a Greek phrase and koinonia, which is in communion, 
logon ates, or with her words, which is literally in fellowship of her words in talking with her. No, it's not your words that matter. It's the wisdom of God which matters. So it's in fellowship, in a fellowship of her words, the words of wisdom which matter. You could talk to God, but don't think that you're going to get God to follow your agenda. That ain't going to happen. <laughs> this isn't a democracy. Notably, the use of the Greek word here, periaimi, which in this case is properly translated as I went about, is evidently an uncommon use of the word, according to Liddell and Scott. Solomon now alludes to his youth, which also once again elucidates the fact that he was a very young man, or perhaps even still just a boy, when he first sought to be a friend of wisdom. And it says, and I don't like these translations here in the next couple of verses, so we will amend them. For I was a witty child and had a good spirit. So because you were funny, maybe God is going to grant you favor. That's not the way it works, right? I mean, Jews are funny. Niggers are funny. <laughs> I pray they don't have the favor of God just because they're funny. They're funny to watch only because they're so stupid or so wicked. And they're so stupid and wicked that if you don't laugh, you'll cry. For I was a witty child and had a good spirit. While in so many places, the King James translation cannot be criticized because if I'm not criticizing passages, they're actually well translated according to the sense of the Greek. I've examined to this point in our commentary on the wisdom of Solomon, I've examined every single word of the Greek. And some things I chose to overlook because they weren't really um, important enough to comment on. Some things I may have overlooked because I didn't feel they were important enough anyway. Well, well, all of the passages that I thought merited criticism, I've criticized, I've retranslated. The King James Version of the translation of wisdom in a lot of places can't be criticized. Some of these passages which we've just read were translated in an excellent manner. But this one, this one needs to be criticized. We would translate this verse, for I was a witty child and had a good spirit. We would translate it to read, for I was a child of good natural disposition, of spirit. And I obtained good, which is very clear in the Greek. The final clause of the King James translation, and had a good spirit completely ignores the use of the verb lagcano, which according to Liddell and Scott, when it is used with a word of the genitive case, means to get one share of, or to become possessed of a thing. But its primary meaning with words in the accusative case cannot be ignored, as it Nevertheless, implies that something was obtained, whatever that 
you got your share of or became possessed of was obtained by lot, by fate, or by the will of the gods. Or in scripture, by the will of God, because we're not Greek pagans. So Solomon obtained or possessed good on account of his good natural disposition. The word agathes in the second clause is an adjective. <clears throat> but it does not modify the noun suitcase, which precedes the conjunction te or and in the translation. You don't have a noun and then a conjunction and then another verb and then another noun or, or another adjective and claim that adjective modifies that word, that noun that preceded the conjunction. No, I don't accept that. Not at all. Not when the adjective is the natural object of the verb which precedes it. As we have seen, while verbs commonly have a noun of the accusative case as their object, the verb lycano, according to Liddell and Scott, can take a noun of the genitive case as an object. So in this instance, we would rather interpret the adjective agathes as a substantive, treating it as a noun, as a functional noun. And that happens all the time, and it's very frequent here in wisdom that standalone adjectives are substantives. Furthermore, in reference to the first clause here, according to Liddell and Scott, and this is important, the word euphues, euphues, is literally well-grown, shapely, good, and then of good natural disposition, which is exactly how we have translated here or naturally suited or adopted, adapted. I'm sorry, not adopted, adapted. This word, euphues, was also used to describe something of good natural parts. So therefore something clever, some construction, some clever construction that's well made. But that is a secondary use of the word. Actually, it's, it's a tertiary use of the word. And it is not the context here. Now, the New English translation of the Septuagint only partly agrees with me. As it reads verse 19 to say, I was a naturally clever child. And they get that phrase, naturally clever, from euphues. But that's a a term, that's a definition of the word which applies only in certain childs, not, not of a man. A man is not a clever construction of others. It, it's outside of, as far as I'm concerned, the use of the term in classical Greek. I was a naturally clever, clever child, and I obtained a good soul as my lot. So they're using that word that adjective agathes, which follows the conjunction to modify a word which precedes the conjunction, and I can't agree with that. But perhaps Solomon himself defines what he meant or what is meant by the use of the term euphues in verse 20, 
which is actually a parallelism. Yeah, rather, being good, I came into a body undefiled. In Wisdom Chapter 3, the undefiled body is explained, where Solomon defines what is defiled. And he says, But the ungodly shall be punished according to their own imaginations, which have neglected the righteous and forsaken the Lord. For whoso despises wisdom and nurture, he is miserable, and their hope is vain, their labors unfruitful, and their works profitable, unprofitable. Their wives are foolish, and their children wicked. Their offspring is cursed. Wherefore, blessed is the barren that is undefiled, which has not known the sinful bed. She shall have fruit in the visitation of souls. In Solomon's time, as he himself had done in his folly, which is described in both the historical records of Scripture and in Ecclesiastes, the foolish and those who neglect the righteous did so by committing fornication with the Canaanites and other alien women who were unworthy of such communion with the children of Israel. The acceptable bounds of marriage were defined in both Genesis and in the laws in Deuteronomy. The sinful bed is the bed of fornication, which is race mixing. And for that reason, the children of such beds are wicked because they are bastards. But this is how Solomon can assert that he is good, that he was a child euphues, a child of a good natural disposition. The word euphues is formed from a prefix which means good, that eu, you. Eugenic means to be of a good race, of a noble race. EU and genic from genos, which is race, hence the name Eugene. The word euphues is formed from a prefix which means good. Euthanasia comes from two Greek words, that word eu meaning good, and thanatos, which means death. Good death is euthanasia. Let's let them off easy and just pump them full of morphine, and, and he'll pass on, and we're done with him. Take the easy way out. Okay. The word euphues is formed from a prefix which means good, and a noun, phue, which, when used of animals and plants, referred to the original form of a thing, and is sometimes even translated into English as race. The related verb, fuo, when speaking of men, is to beget, or engender, or generate, referring to sexual reproduction. Another related noun, fuos, is a poetic form of futuma, and describes that which is planted, a plant. 
So these meanings of the related terms cannot be ignored or discarded when considering the meaning of euphues in clear connection with the assertion of being good and the profession that he came into a body undefiled. Solomon, describing himself as a child of good natural disposition and professing that he came into a body undefiled is asserting that he is an example of what Yahweh God had originally planted in Genesis, where we read in chapter 1, and God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then a little further on we read, and God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. But then in Genesis chapter 6, we see the so-called giants, the Nephilim, or fallen ones, appear. And they were never described as having been a part of that creation of Genesis chapter 1, which was good. So they must have a different origin. And their presence and their character, or nature, was not necessarily good. Aside from the Kenites, the descendants of Cain, who evidently joined with them in the land of Nod, these Nephilim had been race-mixing with the daughters of Adam. And even after the flood of Noah, their descendants remained as giants, Nephilim, Rephaim, Anakim, Zuzim, roving creatures, and others, who in turn were found race-mixing with the Canaanites. So Solomon is professing that he is a true child of Adam and not one of these other spurious races of men. A soul or life is not good because it does good. So Christ himself said to the young man who approached him in Galilee, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 19, why caused, why, I'm going to, Put this in modern English, okay? I'm sorry. Why do you call me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if you will enter into life, keep the commandments. Why callest thou me good is a tongue twister sometimes. Rather, a life is good when it is a life which was created in accordance with those commandments, as Yahweh God had created man in the first place. <clears throat> but not all humans exist in that accord, as the Nephilim and their children are still with us today. And they were in and around Israel in the days of Solomon. That is why, in Scripture, there were laws against fornication, which the Apostle Jude described as the going after of strange or different flesh. 
And he related that directly to those very same Nephilim, whom he called the angels who left their first estate. So Solomon asserted that he was good, not on the basis of his works, but on the basis of the fact that he was indeed a specimen of the true Adamic creation of Yahweh God, <coughs> which God himself had called good. That is why he used that term, euphues. That is why he used the statement that he came into a body undefiled. He didn't earn it. He came into it. But even with that profession, which is honest, even if it is not perceived as being humble, Solomon expressed his humility in an acknowledgement that he had no entitlement, that he still could not receive wisdom without the blessing of God. In verse 21, nevertheless, when I perceived that I could not otherwise obtain her, and I don't like this translation either, but we'll explain it shortly. Except God gave her me, and that was a point of wisdom also, to know whose gift she was. I prayed unto the Lord and besought him, and with my whole heart I said, and that's where the chapter ends. The word her is not found here in the Greek texts. But on two occasions, it is added by the translators. And that is also the case in other translations, such as the New English translation of the Septuagint. We would rather not add the word if it is not absolutely necessary. And therefore, we would translate this verse to read quite differently. But I knew that not in any other manner shall I be self-controlled, if not that God would give it. This also was but a thought by which to know what is the favor I would attain with the Lord. And I begged him and said from my whole heart, the sentence is cut off, because what Solomon begged of Yahweh God is found in the next verse at the start of chapter 9. So we won't see it this evening. Even though Solomon asserted that he was a true creation of God, and for that reason he was good, he nevertheless admitted that he did not have wisdom on his own, and that he did not have any entitlement to wisdom in spite of the fact that he was a king in Israel. He could only beg God for wisdom, and with that, he knew that he must have self-control or temperance in order to have the favor of God in his request and could only attain that temperance with the help of God. Many kings since Solomon have not had wisdom, and many who did not have it most likely never thought to ask for it. Speaking to Christians of the 12 tribes scattered abroad, the Apostle James wrote in the opening chapter of his first epistle, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that gives to all men liberally, and upbraideth not. And it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, 
nothing wavering, self-control. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Saying that, James also understood that there was no entitlement to wisdom. Here we also see that Solomon associated his search for wisdom with an acknowledgement that it is necessary to have self-control. Likewise, Paul of Tarsus had made exhortations for self-control in his epistles. For example, in sexual relations in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and more generally, in striving for the incorruptible prize which Christians anticipate in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where he said in verse 25, and every man that strives for the mastery is temperate in all things, or has self-control in all things. That word temperate is from a verb form of the adjective, which we translated here as self-control, which is ekrates, self-controlled, ed, because it's an adjective. It describes somebody who is temperate. Peter used the noun form in the opening chapter of his second epistle, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, temperance, or self-control, and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you, that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the rewards of wisdom are wonderful, but wisdom is fruitless if we do not have self-control. And self-control must be granted by God, even though it is a prerequisite, I'm sorry, it is a prerequisite to the acquiring of wisdom. You're not going to be wise and out of control. That is folly. Thank you for listening. We shall return with Chapter 9 of Solomon's Prayer for Wisdom when we commence with our commentary on the wisdom of Solomon in the near future. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.